You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. By the time you read this blog or listen to the podcast, my fella and I will have returned from our trip to Poughkeepsie, New York in the winter, where we will have picked up the newest member of our family, Sheila the Cavapoo. Sheila's picture will be on my website at lisabernbach.com. And I am thrilled that a tiny little eight-week-old fluff, barely weighing four pounds, is joining our household. How can such a tiny creature make us happy? Are you serious? What a silly question. Now, we know nothing about raising a puppy. We've read some of one book, and we've talked to the breeder a number of times, but you know what? We're gonna we're gonna be fine. And it's a wonderful thing to do this winter. And you know what? Having a puppy is optimistic, and that's something that we wanna be and that we feel. So as we go forward in this process of becoming acclimated to a Cavapoo puppy, and she becomes acclimated to us in the city. Good luck to us all. We will give you uh, reports. How did she become Sheila? Oh, here's the thing. When my 90-year-old mother cannot remember a female's name, she will refer to her as Sheila. So when we told Exhibit B that we were going to be adopting a little female puppy, she said, are you going to call it Sheila? She also suggested calling it Lisa, which would be the perfect name if my name weren't Lisa. Lisa is a very funny name for a dog, just throwing it out there. Something else I wanted to just mention before we go further, and that is this podcast needs subscribers. It's very easy to subscribe. You can subscribe to Five Things That Make Life Better wherever you listen to it. If it's that purple place on your iPhone, you can do it there. If it's Spotify, you can do it there. YouTube, iHeartRadio, wherever it is, do it there. It's better for you because then you never miss an episode. Like, who would ever want to miss one of these? And it's better for me because then we look like a more serious enterprise after 128 episodes, but who's counting? So please do it if you haven't done it already. It's free, unlike a little cavapoo. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at headquarters, we have cool guests with a great book for the holiday. I'm happy that Amanda Benchley and Sharon Copeland-Hurwitz could talk about their collaboration of collaborations. It's just a giant collaboration-a-thon. Their book is called Open Studio, Do-It-Yourself Art Projects by Contemporary Artists. Sharon is an art dealer and a generator of projects, and Amanda is a writer of books, and they both are friends with lots of artists. And this book is artists talking about their process, which I love, and photographs of them in their studio, and then projects that they have created specifically for this book, some of which are inserted in the book in different media, and others are just very clearly described what you need 
to replicate these projects. But what you may find is you may start out thinking, oh, I'm going to make exactly this thing that Marina Abramovich made. Yes, she's one of the artists and decide to to use it just as inspiration for something else. The book itself is almost a work of art or actually several. So that is going to be fun. But first, it's time for the list of five things that make my life better or that made it better this week. Number one, drum roll. Could there be any competition? Number one is the vaccine. Have we ever wanted a shot so badly? My God. I mean, watching the essential workers on TV get their first shots in, I don't know if it was in every state, but in many states, was so moving I heard Chris Hayes on MSNBC say, I could have watched essential workers getting their shots all day. There is something really great about it. Very moving. And, you know, whether it's March or July that most of us will have had our vaccines, it's it's a godsend and it's it's spectacular. Even though it doesn't bring back the people we lost, of course, it does give us hope. Number two the Electoral College. Now, for many reasons, the Electoral College is outdated. And perhaps within the next four years, Congress will find a way to eliminate it altogether, as it has a lot to deal with population density that's irrelevant today. But today, I'm taping this the Monday before you hear this, I listened to electors talk about the sanctity of their votes and the importance of their votes. And I heard again for the 50th somethingth timeth that Joe Biden won the election and will be our president. I know that some people just won't accept this for a while. And that's, in my opinion, that's pretty tragic. But for the rest of us, this was a very good day. Number three, Dr. Jill Biden. You know, our incoming first lady, by all accounts, is a lovely and decent person. And she has continued to teach in community college for as long as she's been in the public eye, even though there are duties ascribed to the second lady of the United States when she was that for eight years. And there are duties that must be done by the first lady, which she is now or is about to be. But Jill Biden worked very hard as a mother and a stepmother to get her graduate degrees in education and her PhD while she was raising a family. So that isn't easy. Any of you who are working mothers know when you're working, you're worried that you're not doing something at home and when you're studying the same. And then when you're working, you've I mean, there, there's never, it's never enough. There's never enough of you. So if Joe Biden's wife, Jill Biden, earned her doctorate, and by the way, she didn't go to Trump University. She went to the University of Delaware, which is accredited. And if she wants to be known as Dr. Biden, please, can you not allow that and not celebrate it? I think it's fantastic. I mean, she's not a former nude model. I don't know what title that gets, but I, I really look forward to Jill Biden, who seems as regular as they come and who has lived a life. I really look forward to her being the first lady and even moving the needle forward for women, along with Vice President Kamala Harris. Number four, clogs. 
I can't believe I haven't even mentioned these before. I'm a clog lover from way back from the 20th century. That's right, from the 1970s to be precise. And I think of all the shoes I own, and I know I own more than I need, I just love my clogs the most. The backs of them were chewed up by Henry, and I've had all kinds of sort of fancy clogs. I had silver ones once with a braid on them and patent leather ones and red and sandaly ones and so on. But I'm happiest in my beat up. Do I look like a chef? Do I look like a sous chef? Do I look like a, a surgical nurse? Do I look like a surgeon? I, I Just somebody who's got to be on their feet all day clog. They're ugly. They're comfortable. Oh my God, I love them. And if you wear clogs, and clogs are sort of back in now, like everything, I'd love to know which ones you like and which ones you wear and how you've made peace with their homeliness. Number five is creativity. I haven't learned a new language as I thought I might during the, you know, the isolation, the quarantine. I haven't written a book proposal or a play. But I have been creative in other ways. And, you know, when I'm feeling creative, even if it's a cooking thing, well, maybe not cooking because I'm still, you know, a little hesitant in the kitchen. But time stops, not in the way it does in the pandemic where you don't remember if you had a Tuesday already or whether summer came. It's hard to remember. But there's a flow, whether I'm writing an article, whether I'm whatever I'm doing, it's usually in writing where I just lose all sense of time. And I decided to make some projects from the open studio book using guidelines provided by one of the artists. And I found myself so excited and at real peace when I was cutting out a photograph for a collage. So let's hear it for creativity and coming up the authors of Open Studio, Sharon Copland Hurwitz and Amanda Benchley. Don't go away. My guests this week have produced the book that every pandemic needs. And I don't mean to be glib, but the book is called Open Studio Do-It-Yourself Art Projects by Contemporary Artists. It was put together, compiled, edited, photographed, beautiful book published by Faden. And my guests are Sharon Copland Hurwitz and Amanda Benchley. Welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Seriously, what everybody's been doing during the isolation period starting last March is um, crafts and art projects and teaching themselves new things. Now, obviously, you didn't know that we were going to be sequestered for a year when you put this together. Tell us the genesis of this book. Sure. So Amanda and I are co-authors on this book. This book started a while back as an idea that I had, and it was something that I just couldn't get off the ground. And years later, really met Amanda through an extraordinary book that she made called Artists Living with Artists. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really fell in love with um, what she did with that book and was sort of almost professionally stalking her. And we had um, some mutual friends in common 
that brought us together. And Amanda really was the person that made this book come to life because um, up until this point, it was really just an idea of mine and an idea that had been brewing, but it needed sort of like her legs to make it happen. Well, you had done projects, you're a curator and an art advisor, I guess is the term. Yes. And, and you had done projects with artists before, but nothing that was a book. Sure. I publish and make work with artists and they're usually in non-traditional formats and um, they sit outside of what you find in museums or in art galleries. And so I'm sort of interested in that in-between space and that unexpected space. So I've been lucky that I have made a few projects, one with Ellsworth Kelly, a dress I made with him and a print with Jasper Johns and then another print with Chris Wool. But those two prints lived within the format of magazines as gifts. And so this book is in a way an extension of that. We really invited artists not only to make projects as a way to learn about creativity, to access their studio and to better understand how they operate, but also to learn how to make something with them with inserts and with little multiples that you got that they designed. So this book is an extension of the publishing world that I live in, and it's really a love letter to that. But it's also a work of art in itself because there are, I would say, prompts and equipment and real works of art included in the book. Yes. And the artist really took a lot of time and effort. You know, for example, someone like Lawrence Wiener, who spent a lot of time with us exacting his stencil to make sure that it was a beautiful object in and of itself. So in many right. these inserts are things to use. And they're tempting, though, to take, as you're saying and suggesting, to take out of the book and just to mount on your wall, which again, you could do. But the artist really made these things to use them. Their expectation and their dream is that people are going to rip them out. You know, our, our dream is that this book gets quasi destroyed, that, you know, it's something that you really take apart, use, and um, it really becomes a platform for something else. But yes, the artists created artwork in and of themselves to include in the book. Amanda, how did you select the artists who who participated in Open Studio? Well, Sharon and I sort of drew up a dream list. And then some of the artists we knew and had relationships from. Another thing that happened, which happened in, in my other book, is that once, I think it was Lawrence Wiener, who had such a good time with us when we were in their studios, that then he reached out, or his office, his studio reached out to uh, Marina Bramovich and said, oh, wow. you all uh-huh. need to, to do that, this as well. So th- so it all sort of came organically out of itself and from our relationships as well. It's certainly the greatest hits. I mean, most of the hot, hot name artists of the moment are, are there. They're in this book and you can be inspired by them. And even just looking at them in the context of their studios was really fun. Yeah, um, it was also sort of intended to be a bit of a primer for people who maybe don't know these big these names and to learn a little bit about their practice in a very accessible, user-friendly and fun way. Yeah, it sort of makes the job of being an artist. It's not a job, of course, but there was an artist. Let's see, who was it? Who said Rushi Johnson? Who mm-hmm. talked? Who talked at length about you know his decision to really seriously pursue art as a career? Yeah, that was something that we were also very interested in too. Is this the idea of in the back we use the Picasso quote or the alleged 
Picasso quote of you know, right. every child is an artist. So, you know, how how do you become one when you grow up? For you know, paraphrased. And that was very much the genesis. And Sharon originally wanted this book to be for children, right, Sharon? Ah. We did, but at at the end of the day, when you notice the artists that we were lucky enough to include and the kind of projects that they wanted to do with the inserts, it really had to open up to a bigger audience. And I think the one of the big appeals for the artists to do this book, because as you mentioned, they are really extraordinary artists who are well-known um, in high demand. But I think, I mean, I'll never know, and I don't think Amanda will ever know, you know, what was the pitch? How did we actually get the yes? Uh-huh. Outside of, it is true that many of these artists are our friends. And certainly, um, we definitely called them favors in terms of friendships and, and long-term relationships to participate. But I think one of the reasons why these artists did this, aside from the fact that by nature, artists like challenge, they're willing to take risks. But I think in this case, I think they were willing and interested to have a broader audience. You know, we, Amanda and I sort of, and, and I'm certain you too, Lisa, know these artists, but you know, at the end of the day, they don't have the kind of recognition that's as widespread as perhaps right. celebrity has. And it's true, I think, for my other projects, the reason why artists have said yes to publish with me is that I'm always interested in going in the back door and also opening it up to an audience that other otherwise wouldn't have access, wouldn't have ability to do it. And so in a way, yes, you mentioned, I've always been skittish about saying these are additions or artists, you know, objects in the book, because I don't want the artists to feel necessarily that that's what they provided, but in a way they did. But it is a way to get these things that you otherwise would never really, or most people wouldn't have access to doing it. But I think the artists were interested in engaging a broader audience. And they're really interested, I think they've reached out to Amanda and me and are waiting for people to make things and to post them because they want to see what happens. Oh, well, uh, uh, speaking speaking of which, (laughs) I went through the entire book and I thought about the supplies I had at home. I came very close to the Marina Abramovich because I have lentils Mm. and I have rice. That project didn't speak to me, but honestly, I ended up making two collages using the starting point was Micheline Thomas. And I used in the first one, which I'll post on my website at lisabernbach.com, I took a page out of your book. I was, I, I mean, as a writer myself, I was horrified, but there I, it was perforated, so I took it. And I used her model and her page, but because it's also pre-Christmas time, I glued some different gift wrap on it. Oh, perfect. And, and drew some a little stuff on it. And I'm really happy with it. I mean, I, it's, it's, I'm a rank amateur. And then I started cutting out a picture from the New Yorker from an ad. And it became not only the most fun I've had in days, but I, I became kind of uh, driven to do this one. So I, I did two of them. And honestly, now that I have the book at long last, I plan to do more because this is something I could do. My kids are too old to want to do anything with me. But <laughs> I call them my exhibits, my science experiments, but I know some young people who might think it would be very cool to make art with rice and lentils and, and cutouts and so on. I think this is a, an ideal, honestly. It couldn't be more ideal for right now when people are sheltering at home. 
Yeah, I, I have to say Micheline Thomas is one of the people who is waiting to see what people make. So I think we're going to have to connect the two of you and she's going to have to see what you have done. I'm excited. Um, oh, yeah. Micheline is such an improviser herself. So the fact that you improvise like that and, and all of these artists, that was very much the message. It's like, I can tell you how to do these things, these projects, but the most important thing is for you to do it yourself and figure out, you know, how you want it to look, how you want it to be how you want to create. And so it was a very empowering message that, that I think nearly every single artist mentioned in one way or another. Now, John Curran, who is a wonderful painter, his project surprised me because he really didn't create something for us to do as much as explain how he sets up his palette. Right. And it was so, a really generous... You know, Lisa, one of the other caveats of our book was that we gave the artist carte blanche. And that's true whenever I make a project with an artist is that you have to because it's their vision and it's their reputation. So we made a list of artists and it was surprising to us when we made the list. Our publishers wanted us to almost make columns of like the photographers, the painters or whatever. And that dissolved immediately because the photographer in our bunch, for example, he wouldn't call himself a photographer, but Thomas DeMond didn't make anything that was photo based. And so like even with John Curran, there were certain artists that we went in there and we knew in advance what they were going to do. And we prepped and made maquettes and made everything ready for them. And then mm-hmm. there were other artists who were very impromptu, even someone like Wen Genshi, who said she was doing a pulp paper piece, I thought it was going to be something very different. And she really improvised when we got there. John really did do something very different. You know, he was very classically trained and he almost gave us in a way, a little secret. His ritual, really. It was, yeah. And so there's, there is a magic to that. I mean, you can never capture our book. You know, Amanda and I had so much fun in the studios and we hope the book looks fun because we had a blast with the artists, but you never can translate all of it in photo and text and Mm -hmm. never, you know, expected we could translate the actual magic that each of these artists have, which is indescribable. I mean, there's not, we can't do that, but we knew with like John Curran's project and some others, we were going to get these nuggets. And I think with John, that one in particular, you just really understand his discipline and his practice when you understand and how he lays out his paints and not only what a ritual it is but how committed he is to it mm-hmm. and how it has been a gift to him that he's wants to impart now to other people and to share it so I think the artists were incredibly generous to us because as you can imagine all of these artists are busy for the next five years it's mm, yes. you know, they didn't really need to do our book they did our book because again we like to think that maybe you know a few of them liked Amanda and me but also mm. that more importantly they're really interested I think in collaborating with a reader and and sort of sharing I think at the end of the day they're all kind of teachers they've all been taught and they all now want to teach Yeah, I got that impression. And even John Curran said, now I put white on at the end. I never used to, or I used to put it in the beginning. I mean, the process of being an artist, they demystify a tiny little bit because they talk about how they work and you photograph them at work. So it was kind of a private view of these uh, people who, you know, like musicians, they their gift is a mystery. I mean, at least it is to me. (laughs) And some don't like the source material. So for I wrote 
John Baldessari's print catalog resume, and I put together all of his source material. And John, when I presented to him the book, he's like, we're taking it all out. Like he didn't want his steps to be shown. He wanted Ah. only the finished product. So again, all of these artists were really willing to um, be a little vulnerable because at the end of the day, they, they shared with us something that when Amanda and I went into the studio, we asked not only for them to make a project, but we asked for it to be done within like, you know, under 30 minutes, really easy steps. So they had to reduce things to a vocabulary and to a general ability. So in a way, they really had to um, had to share really the essence of who they are and what they do. And mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So tell me, I know it's early days, but Is there one work of art that has been inspiring or replicated more than any others? Have you heard from people who are reading and enjoying it? Amanda, do you think it's um, Will Candy Crown? Yeah, people have really responded to Will Cotton's Candy Crown. As well they should, yes. Probably yes, maybe he does. <laughs> I guess we should say that Will Cotton among other. Yeah, well, he makes a lot of cake-based art and sweet. He yes. uses sweets a lot, right? Yeah, as a sort of metaphor for consumption in, in our society today or overconsumption or over, you know, over the top consumption. But he's like an old man. And, and so like- the candy crown is very cool. I imagine a lot of people will use the cause acetate to trace a cause of their own. And that one is, it's all relative, but in the spectrum of difficulty, I've seen one person do that one already. Actually, my daughter's uh, friend just did it and she shared it with me and it was pretty extraordinary. But, you know, that one takes definitely more time and takes, I think, more skill perhaps than some of the other ones in uh, mm-hmm. in the in the group but it's a totally appealing project and what's so neat about it is you can scale it up and down as much as you want and it could live large on a wall if your projector can do that for you i mean it really could live anywhere and mm-hmm. the two projects in the book that's reusable so there is you know for example you mentioned you just did the Micheline Thomas, there are four inserts. So, you know, two of your four may be done already. But with the cause, you can redo it as you can with the Lawrence Wiener stencil. (laughs) Or copy the Micheline papers and just do them over and over again. Yes, I I guess I did. Well, too late on on (laughs) one of those. But but I love how William Wegman also says, or you say, I don't know whose voice it was, please copy it so you have more pictures of the Weimaraners. Yeah. yeah, that's a really popular project. And that's, I can imagine. I think that's my, my favorite project because A, I can do it and B, I love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that one. I thought I was going to hit it first, but then I wanted, I didn't want to waste the pictures on bad paper. And I was afraid I didn't have, I mean, the, the list of supplies that your artists offer are great and very specific. But then I felt, oh, I better be specific too. I don't have that foam core or I don't have, you know, that kind of pen. We kept it generic in the list and then at the bottom, there are resources. So we didn't brand it at the top, hoping that exactly what you said wouldn't happen. Because as Amanda mentioned, most of the artists, in fact, all of the artists are really flexible. They might not be flexible in their own practice and they might be very exacting, but they aren't expecting in this book for you to have all those supplies or for you to use, for example, that specific pen that caused you since he was, you know what, he uses very fine tip pen that he's used since he could afford it as a teenager. So, you know, the idea is you really could transfer it to something else. And we had hoped that 
the list was going to be really stuff, everything that you just have in your house. But, right. you know, the artists, they picked what they wanted. And then we tried to make it as accessible as you could. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, so I didn't worry about it. I did my collages, which I'll show you, and I'll show Micheline. And of course, if you have eggs in a Sharpie, you can join in. I mean, it really is accessible. I don't mean to suggest that you need to have expensive or specific equipment. Well, I again, I have to say, it's just such a delightful book. It's called Open Studio, Do-It-Yourself Art Projects by Contemporary Artists. And Amanda and Sharon, you have kindly come up with your list of five things that make both of your lives better. So I want to go through this list. And should we alternate? I'll just say the number and then one of you will pipe up. Sure. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So your list starts with number one, the Met. Well, I think like when we came up with this list, we wanted to talk about places that were special to both of us. And I've worked at the Met twice in my life. And Sharon's very connected in doing a project for them right now. And in our early, early days, before there was even a book contract, we would just meet at the Met and have powwow meetings. So, um, uh-huh. so for those reasons, aside from the fact of how, how great it is, especially right now when no one's there, it's a very special place. Yeah. The Metropolitan is, to me, it's the music. I mean, there are wonderful museums in New York and in the country, but the Met to me is the museum. Yeah. If you had to get rid of all the rest and just kept the Met, it would still give you that education right. about yeah. art over yeah. the years. Especially again right now when without all the tourists, it's really nice. It certainly is. Number two, Central Park. I think a lot of what we were thinking about isn't just specific to COVID, but Central Park and the Met both. I mean, thank goodness the Met reopened in late August, but Central Park did not close during COVID. And it was a huge resource for me for walking and just for feeling that, um, you know, I, I think we were finishing this book during the beginning of the pandemic. We were putting it to bed. And so we had that to do. But the park really was, you know, the only place in New York where you could go and you could feel like you were away. And I just feel like that was a gift to, to both of us. And I mean, it's definitely more outdoorsy than I am. Central Park is probably the, the most outdoorsy I go. But <laughs> that's it. I'm over like a walk and I'm done. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would get right back home. But, but I needed it and we needed it. And like the Met, it's an oasis. I mean, New York City is worth fighting for and staying for during COVID because you see what we have as resources and it's just bar none. I couldn't agree with you more. It is worth fighting for and it's not going anywhere. Uh, No. And I've discussed this on this program before that reports of its demise are greatly exaggerated. And it just, New York feels like New York most of the time. Yeah, it does. And the craziest thing during COVID was I was doing walks with a mutual friend of ours who I think has been on your podcast. We'd have like a walk every other day. And during COVID, like you would see the barber cutting hair outside in Central Park, like everyone was just doing everything they needed to do, but use the park as their platform. And I feel like that was just an extraordinary act that we all sort of found that that was the nucleus of New York. And that was our safe haven. 
And even still, now that some things are open, I guess hair salons are open, but I see concerts. I see there's a band that regularly posts itself in a certain position in Riverside Park that we've seen recently. And yeah, New Yorkers need their green. That's yeah. the other thing. Who was, who was your friend that you walk with who oh, was on um, the show? A mutual friend, um, Molly Jongfast. Oh, Molly, she yeah. is fantastic. With fantastic. Yes. And she was um, a, a special friend that the two of us, Amanda and I share. And um, But she was my walking partner through the whole COVID bit. So it's been great. Oh, good. Excellent. Well, say hi to her for me. Yeah. Um, number three, St. Ambrose. Oh, okay. So um, <laughs> that's my guilty pleasure. It's our guilty pleasure. But, you know, it's this extraordinary Milanese um, restaurant. But it really was the watering hole and sort of the starting place for open studio because it's a ritual that I have every morning. I go there and have coffee and there are friends that I congregate. It's almost like cheers. And one of them is Maya Lynn, who is uh, ah, a uh-huh. book. And she was the first artist that Amanda and I asked. And that was really the moment where we felt like, oh my gosh, this might have legs. Like she said, yes. She said, um, yes. She said yes. And, and she did bring on, she was very helpful with other artists, as Amanda said before. So Santa Rosa is just a really important place to connect. It's something I miss, you know, not being able to have my cappuccino in the morning there. But Amanda and I also use it as a um, way to gift and say thank you to each of the artists. So each time we went to an artist studio, we brought a package from San Ambrose to thank the artists to bring hospitality, their hospitality. Oh, that's yeah. lovely. We would be in the studio for so long with them that we'd have to eat some of the cookies. That yeah, we ate all of it. <laughs> I, bring, I bring wine as a hostess gift, which I then drink right. at my friend's houses. Now you're talking about all the St. Ambrose's or the one on Madison Avenue? The one, or? On, the one right by the Met. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. So that one in particular, um, for sure, is is the one because Amanda and I live within the proximity of the Met. So we, we both live pretty close to each other. I should say to people who are not from New York, St. Ambrose did start in Milan. There are still branches of, of it in Milan, and it's known for its coffee bar. I mean, very good coffee. And the ambiance. And the ambiance. I feel like some of the, my most important moments professionally or socially or have been there. And so during COVID for me in particular, that's what I've missed most is sort of meeting for morning coffee with, with a bunch of friends there. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Not there, but yes. Number four, the public theater. So we chose the public theater because we are both theater buffs who go all the time in in normal times. And I think the public theater especially is such a great setting for a perfect New York evening because you can eat right there in that that cute library restaurant that they have. And then you can go into the theater afterwards. So it's sort of, it's not that stressy Broadway. Oh, we've got to run and stand in line. It's just so, it's just, and then the building is so gorgeous right there on Lafayette Place. And I, I think it's just, I'm happy and Sharon's happy every time we go there and you see things right you guys saw Hamilton there first you see the early things right and then the public theater also provides art and deliciousness in the summers when they produce Shakespeare in the park which is free of charge to anybody who wants to go yeah and well anyone who wants to wait online yeah that Del Corte theater is amazing and I, I, I we haven't missed it in years so I'm I'm it's something I think we're all looking to get back to absolutely And number five, 
friendships. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say that I'm, I'm going to speak first in this one because I'm going to get a little um, sentimental. But, you know, when you do a book, you don't know what's going to happen. But I can tell you um, whether or not Open Studio gets printed again or, or finds uh, the right place in, in art books, I've, I've made a friend out of it. And so I knew of Amanda. And as I said, I admired her so much in her professional work, but I was so lucky to have her as a co-partner. And I think our book and Amanda and I were talking about friendship because this book is all about that. You know, Molly, who is a dear friend that we share in common, and Marian Boski, who's one of Amanda's dearest friends, really brought us together. She was sort of um, the matchmaker. Uh-huh. And, and then most of all, as we said, many of these books are our friends. Uh, many of these artists, excuse me, are our friends. And we're so grateful to them who really have entrusted us and, and to have taken this journey with us. It was such a leap of faith. It's, you know, you mentioned, you were saying, oh, it's, it's such a COVID-friendly exercise. Well, two years ago, I think our publisher thought we were a little crazy. I mean, Amanda was the only one when I came to her with the idea, she immediately saw it. She immediately understood the value of it. I think that these artists, if they weren't our friends, who knows if they would have done it, but we're grateful for their friendship. And Amanda and I also met artists during this process and, and feel like we've gotten to know them really much better. So friendship is not underrated. It's no. not underrated. And especially now. You know, it's like, I think it's why I to go to a restaurant is we just want to be with people. Right. And Amanda, the idea that one artist would call a friend that you might not right. know and say, hey, why don't you come along and do this project? It's really fun. And these women are really smart adds to right. that. Well, home. I think, you know, I mean, Karen and I have a lot of love for each other that I think, you know, it shows if we're going into somebody's space. And we're very, very different, but adore each other. And yeah, um, you know, it's unusual. I think I always looked at people who had who were co authors of things. And I'm like, how does that work? You know, to me, I'm like, how is it? Because I'm so type A and, and Amanda is just like so chill, but she knows how to make everything flow and happen with tremendous grace and ease. It was really helpful to have someone who was unlike you, who was able to bring something together and, and it, it wasn't a compromise, the book. And, and this project was, it really came together because we really met along the way. It was great. Wonderful. Well, I've collaborated a lot and it can be one of the really, you know, two are better than one usually. And I love your book. I hope it does very well. And I hope you do a second edition with the artists who now want to be in it because they missed out. (laughs) And it was lovely talking to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see you. Love to meet you in person at uh, Cafe Ambrose. Ambrose. Yeah, let's go. Yes, and I have to say, your book was my book for my Uh, home. And so uh, the fact that who would have known that this book would lead to meeting you by by, uh, (laughs) podcast, I would never have guessed it. And this is a big, big high for me. Oh, thank you, Sharon. (laughs) So I'm like, I have to one day send you pictures, but I really took it seriously. Good. Very seriously. (laughs) Well, I love hearing that. My, uh, my guests this week have been Amanda Benchley and Sharon Copeland Hurwitz, authors of Open Studio Do-It-Yourself Art Projects by Contemporary Artists. You can follow Sharon on Instagram at Sharon Hurwitz and Amanda on Instagram at Amanda Benchley. The website for this book is Faden.com.
P-H-A-I-D-O-N. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Each new review brings new listeners to our show. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program, including my two Micheline Thomas Monkey collages. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso, Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.